Hello, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church, and I want to welcome you to this next installment, today's installment, of Coming Face to Face with Jesus. We're looking at accounts from John's Gospel where people did exactly that. They met Jesus face to face, and each time they did, something amazing happened, and their lives were transformed. I hope that today the Lord will speak to you, and um, as we encounter him through Jesus' interaction with three people, with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, some friends of Jesus, that my life and yours will be transformed as well, that we'll learn something about God and we'll learn something about ourselves. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I pray that you'll speak, you'll move me out of the way, and we'll leave here today closer to you than what we've come in. Please, Lord, guide us. We thank you, Lord, that John was faithful in recording what you inspired, what, uh, what you inspired him to write. Now, Lord, allow these words to transform us just like they changed Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Inside your bulletin you'll find today's outline entitled Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And if you need a pen to fill out the blanks, just raise your hand or fill in the blanks. Uh, just raise your hand and uh, some ushers will come up down the aisle and hand a pen to you. One day, this is from according to John 11, uh, a man named Lazarus was, became sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha, and they were friends of Jesus. They'd supported his ministry. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. And it wasn't just to give him, hey, just FYI. It wasn't like that. It was, you need to come now and heal him because he's really sick. But here's the strange thing. When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, you also need to know that as we've covered here in the first few weeks of this series, Jesus had made a lot of friends because he'd done some amazing miracles. Blind people could see and lame people could walk, but he'd also made some really strong enemies. He would heal people on the Sabbath, and there were some Sabbath Nazis who saw to it that uh, rules like that were never broken, and Jesus didn't care for man-made rules that interfered with what God intended. He also talked as though he had the ability to forgive people's sins. He claimed to be the son of God. And the religious leaders of the day thought he was a blasphemer and a liar, and they had threatened to stone him. So you need to know that. So when Jesus said, hey, we're going back to where Mary and Martha lived, this was going right back to the place where people wanted to kill him. So finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus replied, look, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. And if you'd circle those two words, really believe, we're going to camp out on those words a lot today. In fact, if I wouldn't have titled this message, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, I just would have entitled it, really believe. I mean, do we really believe? That was the whole thing. Jesus' disciples had seen him walk on water. They had seen him feed thousands with the little boy's lunch. They had seen all the miracles. But raising somebody from the dead, wow, that was, that was another whole leap of faith. And so the note in the outline kind of take, tells you where we're going here today. Jesus wasn't afraid of the Jewish religious leaders and what they do to him. Neither was he callous to his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus had stayed put for two extra days, days so his disciples would really believe. 
Everything we're talking about today, all these stories in this series are written so that you and I will really believe. It's easy to give lip service. It's great to sing wonderful songs with a worship team about how great Jesus is. But will we really trust him? I mean, the disciples had to do this right away because they'd found out Lazarus was sick. They knew Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. And Jesus didn't move for two days. He just stayed where he was. And then they found out Jesus himself told them, well, Lazarus is dead, and this is good because now you'll really believe. You'll see what God's power is really all about. There's a life application in this for you and me. We're going to talk about different dimensions of what it means to really believe. First of all, you and I have to understand that Jesus wants us to really believe that his plans and his timing are better than ours. Well, if somebody's sick, well, I need to go help them. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus could have done that and healed Lazarus, but he had something bigger in store. He's going to raise him from the dead. That's a miracle the disciples hadn't seen yet. And Jesus, who claimed to be the resurrection of life, he needed to prove that. And they needed to believe him. And so he said, I'm glad you're going to see this. But it just goes to illustrate the point that um, God's plans aren't the same as ours. Isaiah 55, 8, the Lord is speaking. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Solomon, the wisest man who'd ever lived, who'd been given special insight by God, wrote this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He wrote this to his son. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he'll show you which path to take. God's ways are not the same as ours. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Anybody ever experienced that before? Yeah, you pray about stuff and say, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, Lord. It's like, yeah, right. Okay, well, let's just hang on to that. Yeah, that's a good thought. And God has ways of taking our plans and changing them. And if we will trust him of doing things we would never have thought were possible, ever, ever. His timing is perfect, too. And that brings us to point two. Jesus had a hard time convincing everybody about this, that he wasn't too late. Because, see, Lazarus had died. Jesus hung around where he was, and, man, can somebody get Jesus a better sundial? I mean, this isn't working, okay? Jesus, you're late. Jesus is never late. But a lot of times his timing feels that way. Can anybody say amen to that, that God's timing seems late for me? Do you know that before we ever started Centerpoint, the idea for Centerpoint Fellowship Church was put on my heart 15 years before we ever started this church? I had well-meaning people five years, 10 years before we ever started this church came to me, and I would share this dream about this church, and they'd say, oh, John, that's too late. You're too old. It'll never work. We started this in, a, in this hotel here in Prattville where we're meeting today, and oh, this won't work. Well-meaning people. But God can't do this. Well, if God calls us then he, and he puts a plan on our hearts, well, then things aren't too late. But we have to trust him. See, it's not just for me. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for the disciples. It's too late to fix my marriage. It's too late. It's too late to start working on this addiction. I've been drinking too many years. It's too late. It's too late for me to forgive my brother. We've held a grudge for 15 years. It's too late. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's too late. I can't come to faith in Christ. I can't start coming to church now. It's too late. I can keep going if you want me to. I hear them all the time. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. God can't save this, save this person. God can't change, can't change this habit. God can't help. God can't. God can't. And Jesus said, I'm really glad you guys are here because you're going to see something. 
and you need to know so you will believe. And if anything, I hope that today you will hear out of this that Jesus is the Son of God, and you and I need to believe that, and his plans and his timing are never too late. Well, Jesus had to convince everybody that. Martha, the first sister out the door when Jesus finally got to Bethany, came up to Jesus, and she believed that if Jesus had come sooner, Lazarus wouldn't have died. It was too late. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Oh, yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Anyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Oh, yes, Lord, she told him. And she went on to say that I've always believed you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one sent from heaven. I believe it. And Jesus is going, hmm, really? I mean, I know Lazarus is going to rise on the last day, the judgment day. He's going to go to heaven and all that. But Martha, do you know who you're talking to? And that brings us to a note here. Jesus is life itself. He's the source. I mean, Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. Jesus doesn't sell life insurance. He doesn't eat life cereal. He doesn't play the game of life. Jesus is life. Now, somebody should have said amen somewhere in there, okay? Jesus is life. Thank you. Okay, I had to pry that one out. It still is lame, but we'll keep going, okay? Here's the life application of this. Jesus wants us to really believe, and please circle really believe. He wants us to really believe he's the source of life so we won't be afraid of death. I mean, here's the logical conclusion. If Jesus is the source of life and I love Jesus and he has placed God's Holy Spirit inside of me and strengthens me, then I don't have to be afraid of dying. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asked all the time, why do I have to put faith in Jesus? Why can't I believe in anybody else? I go, well, you're a sinner, right? Yeah, well, you need somebody to forgive your sins. Jesus did that. He died on the cross for your sins. You're going to die, right? Yeah, so am I. Well, what's your plan for that contingency? How are you going to deal with that? Do you know the way to heaven? Do you know how to resurrect yourself? Well, no, neither do I. Jesus does. Let's follow him. He forgives our sins and gives us eternal life. Those are two great reasons to follow him. There's still no amens coming out. This is just a tough crowd. I just ought to start at the top again, okay? Look, you and I have to believe this, and this is what Jesus is trying to drive home to Mary and Martha. And Martha, Martha's a friend, supports his ministry. Lazarus had supported him, and she'd seen him do miracles, as had the disciples. Uh, Lord, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Um, Martha, um, I'm God, and he's going to rise again. Oh, yeah, I know he will on the last day, Lord. Mm. Do you know who you're talking to? I am the resurrection and the life. I created 
Lazarus. I gave him life. I can resurrect him, no problem. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Oh yeah, Lord, sure, whatever you say, sure. Well, we'll see in a minute. And you'll see in a minute, when push comes to shove, she was really tested on this. But guys, this is so important to us because one of these days we're gonna face death. Here's the bad news, we're all gonna die. Here's the good news, Jesus came to fix that. Now you got it. This is, this is great. Here's the bad news. We're all a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners. Here's the good news. Jesus came to fix that too. And so this is why he wants his disciples and he wants Mary and Martha and everybody to figure this out. You guys got to believe this. Don't just give me lip service. Don't just check it off the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know there was going to be a Bible quiz today. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, you're, you're the Messiah. No, I mean, do you believe it or not? Well, he had this conversation with Martha. Martha went back and got her sister Mary. Mary came out, and a bunch of people followed him, followed her out to meet Jesus. And when Mary arrived, this is point B, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Apparently, they'd come to this conclusion together. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, I mean, a bunch of people had come there, and they were grieving. A deep anger welled up within him. We'll talk about that in a second. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. That's John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody learns that one first. If you're going to go into, how many verses do you memorize? I've memorized one this morning already. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Got it down, okay? <laughs> Good for you. It counts. It's a whole verse. But it's more important than just memorizing the two-word verse to understand the significance of it. Here's the significance. If you flip your outline over, it's significant that Jesus wept and that he was deeply moved by this because Jesus wants us to really believe, please circle, really believe that he understands our grief and pain. He was despised and rejected. Isaiah had prophesied this about Jesus. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's in every way like us, just, who's just like us in every way, except he didn't sin. Jesus understands grief and pain. Occasionally I will meet with people and they will be so mad because a child died or a spouse died or their mother died and they are just mad and they're angry and bitter toward God and it isn't fair and they got a raw deal and I go, and they'll talk to me, and I say, I understand. I go, why don't we pray about it? I am not going to pray to God about this. I'm mad at him. And it's like, well, let's talk to him about that. I don't want him to know. <laughs> he already knows. I mean, he knows, right? Right. So why wouldn't we talk to him about that? Well, he wouldn't understand. God wouldn't understand Jesus stood by the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and he wept when he saw everybody else crying too. He hates this. Jesus wouldn't understand what it's like to deal with death and pain and grief. He died on the cross for you and me. He watched his disciples desert him. He felt it when the people mocking him spit on him and the Roman soldiers beat him. He doesn't understand anger, disappointment, betrayal. 
Jesus doesn't know what it's like to pray in the garden of Gethsemane. Lord, I hate this, but not my will be done. Yours be done. He doesn't get it. Yeah, he gets it. And the one person in the whole universe that you can talk to with complete honesty and say, God, I hate this. This isn't right. I can't stand this. Is Jesus. He gets you. He gets me. And these promises in Psalm 34, 17, they are not idle promises. Listen to this. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are spirits are crushed. God is not just a God of someday in heaven. He's a God of this day right now. And his grace is strong enough to help us when we're going through grief and pain. If you're going through grief and pain right now, don't turn away from the Lord. Even if you're angry at him, tell him you're angry at him. He already knows. It's one of the reasons he was so upset. It's not the way he created the world to be. Well, it wasn't just Mary and Martha. All of Mary and Martha's friends believed that if Jesus had come sooner, Lazarus wouldn't have died. How do I know that? Because this is what they were saying as Jesus was walking to the tomb. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much Jesus loved him? But some said, well, this man healed a blind man. Can't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Now, I added the accent there. Okay, but you pretty much get the sarcasm. Well, why wasn't he here? He could make a blind man see. John 9, it's only John 11. How come he can't have healed Lazarus? What happened? And it says here, it's interesting, that Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. And there's a note that's important here. Here's what Jesus was angry about. He was angry about sin and death and unbelief. I mean, when he saw Mary and all of her friends crying, he was deeply moved and deeply angry. And as the creator of the world, the one who gives us life, he didn't create us to sin and rebel against God. And now we're suffering the consequences. And he was seeing it played out of how death separates us from our loved ones. And it's a horrible pain to bear. And he was angry about that. That's not the way he created life to be. We made it that way. He was also angry at unbelief. Mary and Martha and the disciples and all these people should have known better. They'd seen him do miracles And it's like, well, if you'd have come sooner, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Hmm. You still don't believe. Hmm. And the Son of God in the flesh, standing there, the source of life itself, and they're saying, ah, you're a day late and dollar short, Jesus. You can't get it done. (sighs) Really? That brings us to point three. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he said, well, then roll a stone away. Now, for all this to make sense, you have to understand what tombs were like in those days. They didn't bury people in a cemetery the way we do, in a casket in the ground. Um, What they did is they would take a body and wrap it in burial clothes and put it in a small cave if you had the means to do so. apparently, Apparently, Lazarus and Mary and Martha all did. There were limestone cliffs in abundance around there, pretty soft rock, and you could hire someone to chisel out a small cave. And inside the cave, you would, uh, inside this cave, and I've been, my wife and I have been to Israel, and we've walked into some of these tombs. We've crawled through them. Crawling through them is more like it because most of them are only three or four feet high. They're expensive. You didn't, most of them weren't six feet tall or anything. But you'd get into this tomb. You'd 
have a couple people that would carry a body inside the tomb. It had been kind of wrapped up like a mummy in burial cloths and spices and stuff put on it and perfumes. And there would be inside the little cave, there would be two shelves, a shelf, at least a shelf on one side and a shelf on the other side where you could place a body. This would be a family crypt. And so the body would be placed on this little shelf inside the tomb. And then the family would walk out and through the small, they'd crawl out through the small opening that they'd created and a rolling stone would be rolled over the opening to seal the crypt. Well, after the body had decomposed for a couple of years, someone would open the tomb to make room for the next family member that was to be left in there. They would collect the bones and put them in a small bone box called an ossuary. And these, again, these have been excavated all over in Israel. And so, and then you'd write the name of the person on there. This is Uncle Bert, and here's Aunt Sarah, and Grandma, and Grandpa, and everybody else. And over time, you'd have a stack of these bone boxes all stacked up. And that would open up the shelf for the next person in the family when it came their turn to die. And so Lazarus was placed in there. The stone was placed over the mouth of the tomb. And four days later, Jesus shows up. He's asked everybody if they believe. And they're saying, well, yeah, I mean, we believe enough. If you'd been here before he died, we believe he could have done it. It's like, I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? Well, not really, no. How do I know? Because here's what happened. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the one who six verses earlier had said, oh, I believe, here's what she said. The dead man's sister protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Or in the King James, by now, Lord, he stinketh. That's what it says. And she's righteth. He would have stunketh a lotteth, okay, after four days. Okay, the smell was terrible. Now, again, he's asking her, do you believe? In theory... Yes. In practice, no. And Jesus knows this. And that's why he's glad she's there. He's glad Mary's there. He's glad the crowd's there. In fact, Jesus leaned over and he tells her, Martha, didn't I tell you that you'd see God's glory if you believe? Would you circle if you believe? If you believe, you say you believe, but are you really going to believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven And said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And you get a circle, will believe you sent me. Everything Jesus is doing in this story is to help people actually believe that he's the son of God, that he actually is the source of life. He really can do what he says he's going to do. And it's never too late when Jesus is on the scene. So he's praying out loud. Jesus prayed silently the same way you and I pray silently. But this time he prayed out loud. Lord, I'm praying out loud here so everybody will hear me. I'm trying to get people to believe in you, to believe that you sent me, Father. So Lord, I'm praying now so everybody can hear. And they'll understand this is you giving life back to this man, Lazarus. And this is a miracle from God Almighty and that you sent me. And that's what's happening here. So you can believe. And then Jesus turned and he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound in the grave clothes. His feet were wrapped. And uh, his face was wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. And many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus. Please circle believed in Jesus when they saw that happen. Here we go again. 
Will you really believe? When they saw Lazarus come out after four days and he was good to go, they believed. Now, there have been many commentaries that have pointed this out, um, that it's significant that Jesus said, Lazarus, and he addressed him by name, Lazarus, come out. Because if Jesus would have just said, come out, every single person in the cemetery would have come out. All the graves would have opened. Because the source of life itself said, Lazarus, come out. He is the resurrection and the life, and death flees from him. So there's a life application for you and me. We, or you could put I, you could put your name in there. John Schmidt must really believe, and you can circle that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you really believe? Here's why John wrote all this. Here's why John had this story of Lazarus. It's why he had the story of the blind man. It's why he had the story of the lame man. It's why he had the story, story after story after story. At the end of his gospel, here's what he writes in John 20. These miraculous signs that I wrote down are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's stronger than death. And the only question isn't whether God can do it. The question is whether I'll believe. Jesus knew what he was going to do the whole time. The disciples were the ones who needed to see it, to believe it. Mary and Martha needed to see it and believe it. All the friends needed to see it and believe it. And you and I, there's sooner or later has to be a time where we say, hey, I really believe this happened. Because if this really happened, well, what problem do we have that's bigger than that problem? So if we believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God, he can raise people from the dead, make blind people see, lame people walk. Why do we worry about the problems we face? Walk around with long faces all the time and tell people we love Jesus and then worry just like people who don't. Why do we go around singing praises to God on Sunday and muttering, using the Lord's name in vain on Tuesday. That doesn't work. It's not supposed to. We're supposed to believe. Great quote for you. On the back of the outline in the last set of questions for our connect groups this week, I have a great quote from Helen Keller about dying and her faith. Here's what she said. Death is no more than passing from one room into another, but there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to see. I cannot read that without getting choked up. She believed. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad that all happened, boys, because now you're going to finally believe. You're going to really believe. Lord, if you'd have been here sooner, Lazarus wouldn't have died. I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. Do you believe this? Oh, yes, Lord. Well, then roll the stone away. I don't believe it that much, Lord. <laughs> Why do we give up? Why do we stop praying for family members? Why do we stop praying for our neighbor or for our boss? Why do we give up? I'd submit because... Unbelief is a lot closer to our hearts than we care to admit. It's a sin, you know. To say we love God and not believe in Him. And these stories are here to help us with our unbelief. They're true. Well, not everybody 
did believe. Some of the people at the tomb ran the two miles from Bethany back to Jerusalem where the headquarters for the religious leaders was, temple. That brings us to point four, your outline. The Jewish religious leaders began plotting Jesus' death because he threatened their way of life. They heard about the miracle and all kinds of people now, this big buzz that Jesus must be the Messiah, the deliverer. And what are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, well, then soon everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Roman army's going to come, and they're going to destroy our temple and our nation. And Caiaphas, who was a high priest at that time, said, Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He didn't say this on his own. As a high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. Caiaphas was not saying, you don't understand why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross for everyone's sins. He's going to rise on the third day and save us all. That's not what he meant. He was saying, this man's a troublemaker and a blasphemer, and we're going to have to kill him. It's better that one man dies than when the Romans come in and take away our nation and our temple and our power. I mean, he was in it for the power. Because power and control were everything to them. And Jesus talked about freedom and forgiveness and relationships. And they didn't know what the heck he was talking about. So they decided to kill him. And it gets even better. You can write this in the margin here. The next chapter, this is all John 11. Here's the first few verses from John 12. Mary and Martha have a big party, a dinner party for their brother. You know, like his second birthday or whatever it is. You know, hey, here's a resurrection party. I mean, I think you need to throw a party for that. That's a big deal. So they throw a dinner party and invite some people over. And like the word gets out and everybody shows up to the house. This is John 12, verse 9. Meanwhile, Jesus is attending this dinner at Mary and Martha's house. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was at their house, that Jesus was there. And they came not only because of Jesus, but also because of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans. This is verse 10. This is John 12, 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I mean, what did that look like? Yeah, we got to rub him out. See? Yeah. See? He's trouble. Make it look like an accident, a chariot thing. Yeah. And this time he stays dead. Yeah. And if you think that's ridiculous, well, how ridiculous is this? The guy's already been raised from the dead. Now they're going to kill him again? I mean, their pride and their self-righteousness was so strong that it would lead them to convince themselves that they could justify a double homicide because Jesus wasn't righteous enough. Let's kill him and the guy he raised back from the dead. And that's what pride can do to us. It's like the mother of all sins. It opens the door to every sin we could possibly imagine. But there's a life application I want us to hit real quickly here, and that's this. In order to live for Jesus, I must die to my old way of life. The one thing that the religious leaders got, they nailed it. They were iced tea cold right about was the fact that the Scripture says this, the wages of sin is death, and somebody's got to die for their sins. Either I die or Jesus does. And the religious leader said, well, it ain't going to be me. We're going to kill him. Now, you and I need to say, 
And they said, he's not interrupting with our control and our way of life. We're going to get rid of him. And that's the choice. And it shouldn't surprise us when we proclaim Jesus, that he is the savior of the world and that we are sinners and need to repent of our sins, that many don't want this offer. They don't want to admit that they're sinful and prideful and wrong. They don't want to admit that they have to change their way of life. They don't want to submit to Jesus and say, Jesus, you take this thing wherever you want it to go. I don't want that. I want to go to heaven one day, but on my terms, my way. And I'm not giving up my temper and I'm not giving up my tongue and I'm not giving up the bottle and I'm not giving my time or my money or anything else. If Jesus wants me, then he's got to come on my terms. And then you wonder, well, who's God in this scenario? I am. And there's the big rub. And so when a person comes to Christ and says, I'll follow him, the person that has to be killed is me. Jesus died for me. Now I got to say, I voluntarily surrender my life. Lord, I'm going to die to my old way of life. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 6 when people get baptized. Have you forgotten that when we joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. I mean, baptism is a picture on the outside of what's happening on the inside. It's a picture. In just a moment, you'll see it. It's all acted out for us here. Jesus died on the cross. His body was placed in the tomb. On the third day, on Easter Sunday, he rose again. By the way, you've got to come in two weeks and bring a friend. We'll tell them all about it. It's really exciting. Okay? But the idea is he died, was placed in the tomb, and he rose again. And when a person joins together with Christ, they say, I am now a follower of Christ. I follow the one who died and rose again. When we place them in the water and we submerge them, they're saying, I am dying to my own way of life and my own control of life. Now I live for Jesus and he lives through me. We wear, you'll see him wearing a white robe dipped in water. We put him in the water. We baptize him in water. That's what baptize means. It means to dip or to dunk. So as we place him in the water and bring him out, we have him wear a white robe to demonstrate on the outside that their sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus and their souls are spotless and clean. And because I died in my old way of life and lived for Jesus, when my mortal body dies, I will live forever in a brand new body that God has prepared for me, the one Helen Keller was talking about. And all that's being pictured right there in a baptism pool. So listen to this again. Have you forgotten that when we joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Yet just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life just as he was. Wow. That's such good news. So in just a minute, you're going to see some folks get baptized. The whole idea is we ask them their name and what their profession of faith is. And we've met with them and we've talked to them. Do you really believe it? And they do. One of the guys who was baptized at an earlier service this morning at our 8 o'clock service was Carl Allen. He and his wife Amanda were both baptized then at our 8 o'clock service. And he sat down with us and uh, told us why he was getting baptized. I want you to hear what he said. Hey, my name's Carl Allen. Uh, when I was 18 months old, uh, the state of Alabama came and took me from my mother uh, and placed me in foster care. I was there until I was 18 years old. Uh, while in foster care, uh, I lived with different families and 
went to different churches with different religions and learned a lot about God, but I just didn't know God. Looking back on those 18 years of my life, even though I didn't know God, God had placed people, specific people in my life to keep me going in the right direction. When I was 19 years old, I joined the military. I was in the Army for eight years. While in the Army, I'd go to church, chapel. I never doubted there was a God. I just wasn't ready to give 100% and surrender to Him. Even when I got out of the military, I got married. My wife and I would go to church, we'd visit other churches. Uh, I still wasn't 100% ready to give my life to, to God. But that changed uh, a couple months ago. As a matter of fact, February 23rd of 2014. A few months prior to that date, uh, I could feel God tugging at my heart. My wife and I had been coming to Centerpoint, uh, and through some of the messages and some of the other stuff that had happened in my life, I could feel that I was moving in the direction of giving God everything. Out of the blue one day, one of the pastors from Centerpoint, Scott, called me and noticed, uh, he noticed that I had checked one of the box on the Connect card, uh, rededicating my life to Christ. And I told him, no, that, that wasn't me. Uh, my wife had filled that out and she put my phone number on it. Um, but while I had him on the phone, I'd like to talk to him a little bit more about it. And we ended up setting an appointment for that next Sunday. So I sat down with Scott in his office and we talked about what becoming a Christian was. And that day, Right there, I gave my life to Christ. Today I'm getting baptized and I'm not holding anything back. I want everybody to know I'm giving God 100%.